Welcome to the Big Ten on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. I think I... Yeah, uh, it's FM. Are we sure? We're not AM or... uh, (laughs) Wait, UFH? Isn't that a a thing? (laughs) UFH. Is that from the 80s? I don't know. (laughs) All right. So, uh, I'm... breaker? Uh, I'm uh, the host today, Luke Fowler, here with my co-hosts, Jackie and Jen, and we're uh, all from the School of Public Service at Boise State. We're going to be talking about some politics, nice and exciting, uh, after last week off for Tree Ford. I hope everybody enjoyed uh, a break from us for a week and are excited to hear us that we're back. A little palate cleanser. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that was fun. Were you all able to get to Tree Ford, Jackie? I saw you down there. Yeah, I, this was my first year really taking, you know, engaging, and it was really enjoyable. It's got a nice energy when Tree Fort's in town, right? And saw lots of great bands I'd never heard of, which was fun. Yeah, I love that. It's one of the best parts of living in Boise is getting to go to that festival. It's a good time. Yeah, it's just fun to go and walk around, check out all the stuff that's going on, uh, look at all the weird people and the things they wear. <laughs> weird people. <laughs> I saw some people that were dressed very oddly. So I'm just Well, like, listen, and we love weird people here at Radio Boise. Exactly. Even though Even though we three are super squares. Yes, I'll agree with that. That's true. <laughs> so now it's going to be totally impossible to segue to talking about politics, but we have to do it. Here's the thing. Politics is always weird, so it's easy. <laughs> all right. Speaking of a big weirdo, Bob Mueller... Bob Mueller, Mueller. Let's see how many t- different ways I can pronounce his name through the course of the show, right? That's two different ways. All right. So the, the big story, of course, is Mueller's report. Um, the big story, the big non-story story. Yeah, it's the most anticlimactic thing that's happened in a long time, honestly, because there's all this ex- anticipation and excitement. And there was like, oh, yeah, I basically have told you everything that I found in the last couple of months. So nothing to see here. I mean, the main debate seems to be about what will get released, right? And and what will get turned over to Congress and then uh, made even more public. I mean, everything's secondhand at this point, right? Yep. All we've seen is sort of Barr's memo about the report. Correct. Yeah. And so, I mean, the Trump attorney general, I don't know how much we can buy into that, but as I was mentioning to both of you earlier, I mean, there was a CNN survey, and it was basically just proved the confirmation bias in this entire thing. That They basically showed that um, anybody that already thought that Trump was guilty of conclusion, uh, collusion took all of this report to mean that he was guilty, and they just didn't have the evidence to indict. Everybody thought he wasn't guilty, just took this report to mean that he was completely exonerated. So essentially, uh, even with this report, we're still exactly where we were before the report came out. Can I say, though, that I, I had a um, surprising I was surprised at my own reaction, which was a one of relief, actually. So I, I'm not a huge fan of the president. I don't think he's a great manager. I think there are ethics problems. I'm, I'm not a fan of his rhetoric. And at the same time, I did not want to see the country sort of get flushed down the toilet of uh, some sort of massive arguments over impeachment. I did not want to get the news that, in fact, the Russian government had our president in his pocket. Like, I feel like there's, even though I think there's still a lot of discussion to be had and, you know, people are still taking critical looks at the president and his activities, that's fine. But I was glad to see that there was not evidence of, of collusion to the extent that some folks have, have sort of set things up. Yeah, I think that makes sense to me as well, right? Like we, we, we want there to be. We don't want to just totally degrade the institution of the presidency, and yeah. so we need that legitimacy to hold. And it would really throw into chaos some of some of those things. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think what's going on in the last couple of years has definitely been like historic. Um, it's like the Watergate level of history that we're going to talk about. But I mean, Watergate was very bad for this country, and, and we never really returned to the levels of faith that we had in government prior to that. And so we definitely didn't need another trial, another impeachment, another resignation, whatever plays out here. But just another reason for people to believe less and less in their government as a legitimate source of power and authority. Yeah, and I don't know if we can ever re- recover that. I've been listening to the po- the Slate podcast, Slow Burn, which is also about the Clinton impeachment. And I, I think things were just as sort of riled up and, and uh, anxiety producing then as they are now. But it, for me, I, I hope that we get a chance to sort of um, move past that and, and start talking about uh, substantive policy issues again. So I, I think probably the big takeaway is just that we there's not a, there's a lot we don't know and you can find all sorts of hot takes online. So so we won't give you any particularly hot takes here. In fact, we're I think we're going to pivot to talking about state politics where there are some really interesting policy debates happening. So Jackie, why don't you fill us in on this? initiative about initiatives i'm curious about what's happening right and if you had asked me when when i asked in january i never identified uh the initiative process as as something that was going to be a big issue this legislative session um but yeah we have a bill that um reforms the redistricting process to make it uh stricter um to to reach you know to qualify for the ballot um and it's been just incredibly um controversial and we've seen um, hearings a lot just numerous people signing up to testify um, largely all against there's been disagreements um, so there's been you know temper flares between legislators and citizens I think a little bit of you know conflict within um, legislators it's definitely been suddenly the shift um, of if just the energy change lately in the legislature it seems like a lot about this initiative bill and is that being motivated largely by the Medicaid for all? I mean, the folks who've been listening to us know that there was uh, um, an initiative passed to, to sort of fill the Medicaid gap, and they got enough citizen signatures, the folks who wanted this initiative passed, to have it put on the ballot, and then it was passed by voters. And so is this a reaction against sort of citizens being able to do that, do you think? Yeah, I think there's definitely an element here, right? Like, legislators have a conflictual relationship with initiatives because it takes the power away from them to craft the policy. Um, And so, you know, you've taken the power away from the legislature to do to find what they think is the best solution in kind of broad terms. Um, But also, it seems to be concern about marijuana initiatives. And we've seen medical or or, or recreational marijuana be passed in a lot of neighboring states through the initiative. Um, Perhaps also concern about other policies like minimum wage, where increases that have been passed by the initiative in conservative states. I mean, I am guessing that there are some of our listeners who probably are thinking, well, if there are enough signatures to get it on the ballot, and if there's enough votes to pass it, then isn't that the will of the people, even if it is for marijuana, and even if there are people in the state who think that that should not be legalized for any number of reasons, shouldn't a democracy be about implementing um, what the majority wants? Well, I'll counter that argument. I guess I'm going to play devil's advocate on this issue. <laughs> uh, good for me. I said I said you were a square already, so it's fine. yeah. But so our 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 democracy is a representative democracy, not a direct democracy, and this is one of the few tools of direct democracy out there. Uh, the interesting part is that. Some states have more voter initiatives and more direct democracy action than others. 
there's very few examples where this plays out well. And when I say play out well, I don't mean pass. I mean to say like when a direct democracy initiative gets passed and then everything is like peachy king and the world just gets better. Typically, it kind of causes a lot of problems on the back end. And we can look at the, the Medicaid expansion and just getting passed here. Like the legislature, I mean, this is what they did this year was try to I don't want to say fix, but try to adjust to deal with the initiative. So typically what happens with these voter initiatives is they always come to two things, either lower taxes or more services. And every American wants that because who doesn't want more out of their government and pay less for it? So, of course, we, we pass it. Absolutely, we want that. And then somebody has to come along and go, wait, this is contradictory to everything else that you told us that you wanted and why you elected us. So now we have to try to make these things work. So Um, voters aren't always able to figure out those trade-offs just through ballot process. Well, again, yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, it is a short-sighted one thing. And I mean, again, if you said, oh, wait, we want more people with Medicaid, great. We want marijuana. We want all these things. Like, great. But what are the other consequences of that, right? And none of these people that are voting on the initiatives ultimately have to get elected. And so that is one thing, that there is accountability for these votes later on with our state legislatures, but there's not really for our citizens. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about this question of the initiatives and the voters will. We're going to talk a little bit about California and how things have played out there. Um, So stay tuned. You're listening to The Big Tent on Radio Boise. We're Buster Blue, and you're listening to Radio Boise. KRBX. 89.9 and 93.5 FM. Called, well, Boise. Yeah! Welcome back to The Big Tent on Radio Boise. I'm Jackie Kettler, and I'm here with my co-hosts, uh, Luke Fowler and Jen Schneider. And we're talking about the initiative um, bill today. Uh, there's a, a bill in the Idaho legislature to kind of make the regulate the quali- how to qualify for the ballot stricter. And, and Luke was mentioning that, you know, initiatives can also often cause problems for state governments. And how do we actually implement this? It may complicate matters. At the same time, I do think these measures of direct democracy can be really important, um, especially in a state with that's a one-party government state. And so Republicans have a pretty good hold um, in the legislature on what moves forward. And so uh, through initiatives, it's a, a way to kind of balance policy a little bit and maybe pull it closer to the the median of the popular, you know, the public opinion um, throughout the state. For example, sixty percent of people voted for Medicaid expansion, but yet it wasn't getting through the legislature. And so it does provide a path to kind of push a little bit on that one party and one party institution. So Jackie, I've got to ask, you know, in response to that, or um, so when we think about how much stuff is out there on in the, on the internet and how many you know polarized groups that are, this pol- party polarization, how much of this is in response to the fact that, you know, Republicans can't decide that they're going to vote for Medicaid expansion. They can't say this will go to the field. Like, our governor can't vote, uh, sign off on it because they do. They'll get eaten alive in the national press. Maybe Because it's state wrapped per- up in the ACA debate. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, and so this has become not just something that is Idaho. This is something that's national, and you'll have all these groups. You think this is a component here where maybe 30 years ago that Republicans could just be Republicans in Idaho, but now they're Republicans everywhere? That's a really interesting point that I think, you know, the concerns about being primaried from, um, you know, f- further ideological extremes or things could kind of push parties to maybe be like, okay, well, we, we're not going to do it, but maybe someone will take care of it through the initiative process. Um, but yet we find this discussion being like, well, we're going to try to make it more tough. We're going to require more, you know, like stricter, more 
signatures across more districts, that type of thing, which I will say, you know, the qualifications for getting an initiative on the ballot varies across states. And it's already kind of strict in Idaho. I was going to say, in Idaho, it's already tough. We had the uh, Medicaid for All folks on the show last spring. You can uh, check that out if you're following us um, online. And they really put in a ton of effort. Like, that was a very well-coordinated effort. I don't think it's sort of a fly-by-night um, you know, operation for these in Idaho. We're, we only have at most one or two propositions about uh, an election and, and we've had elections without any. So yeah, we don't have like a wave of initiatives. There are states that do have waves of initiatives though. Yes. And Jen is looking at me. <laughs> you just can't tell over the radio. Uh, because, uh, and I've done some research, uh, particularly on California's budget process, right? And that's some of the stuff that I researched a few years ago. And, and what's interesting is how the initiative system has I mean, honestly, broken um, their budget and to a large extent, uh, or by extension, their economy. And, and so generally what's happened over, say, a 20 or 30 year period is exactly what I was talking about previously. Uh, voters were given this option like, oh, do we want to guarantee X amount of dollars for education spending? Yeah, absolutely. I love education. Vote. Should we ta- like cap tax rates at this amount? Absolutely. I hate taxes. Vote. And so what ultimately led to is California budget being mostly on autopilot that was i think at one point 75 to 80 percent of all spending and revenue was locked in before the legislature ever came to uh, session and so there wasn't a lot of wiggle room now what happens when you hit the and this was where everything uh kind of went off the rails is when you hit the recession and california has a tax system that's highly uh, tied to the economy and so when the economy's bad that underproduces and when it's good it overproduces so in good years they have plenty of money to spend on all these stuff but in bad years they can't balance the budget. Um, not only can they not balance the budget, but they can't do it because they're running against constitutional initiatives that have been added there. Um, there's constant conflicts, there's constant fights. They actually had to pa- uh, pass, I believe, Proposition 25 to undo some of these things just so they could continue to pass budgets. And so basically what's happened is they've made it too easy um, and it's broken a system for the most part. In California, I mean, I, you can watch every budget season and they will struggle to get it through because there's just too many rules and regulations and all of these are constitutionally mandated by institu- uh, by initiatives. So what I'm hearing is that the, maybe there's a sort of a sweet spot that states can have in terms of allowing for some sort of voice, maybe some ideological correction to happen, particularly in one party states like like Idaho, but that if you go too far in the other way and sort of allow maybe for what might be called a more of a mob rule, that things can get pretty chaotic and very, very difficult to implement. Well, and sometimes in California, they'll pass, like conflicting initiatives will pass because people will sponsor conflicting initiatives and they'll both pass. Well, then what happens? Or, or you pass a lot unconstitutional um, initiatives pass. And so then you have the going through the court system. So, which yes. is a lot of reasons resources too. Right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So it's not a perfect system. And yes, we definitely don't want just anything on the ballot. Um, but I do think that there are some concerns that this, some of these restri- further restrictions will really make it difficult to get on the ballot. I will note today, it looks like a new bill has emerged from the Ways and Means Committee in the House that changes the proposal a little bit. It extends the time, the signature gathering time from 180 days to 270 and changes um, um, the legislative districts for 10% of signatures have to, to 
to be gathered to qualify from 32 of 35 districts. Now maybe 24 districts would be required. So it looks like there's still some work being done on what this bill is going to include. I mean, you have to think there would be some backlash from voters, I think, if they went so strict as to make initiatives impossible after what happened with Medicaid for All. Uh, You know, I'm going to counter that because I wonder how many voters are actually going to understand this process looking different, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Particularly because Idaho doesn't have the culture of an initiative state. And so if people aren't used to voting on them, not used to thinking about them, not used to seeing them, they might not even realize it. Now, I think in California, you would see that because there is a culture around initiatives. And essentially, anybody at the time someone gets a good idea, they go start writing initiatives. And so I think those restrictions would really be felt. But I wonder if they would be in Idaho. And maybe that's part of the problem is that they wouldn't be recognized. I I do agree. um, But the Idaho Democratic Party has been very active on this. And so they are mobilizing people. They've been mobilizing people to ask um, Governor Little to veto it, um, even before it it got um, to the House floor. So um, I agree that on their own, citizens may not be especially concerned. But now that you have parties and interest groups really mobilized on the issue, and we already have an initiative being worked on to undo this initiative bill, um, which, of course, the attorney general said, yes, if this passes, you will have to adhere to the new qualifications. So uh, my students really enjoyed that story. Yes. And hopefully this show will help mobilize more people to be interested in voter initiatives. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that was sad, cynically. Um, (laughs) All right. So we have one minute left. So from both of you, what do you think that this uh, what sort of future policy action do you think that this, um, you know, policy against initiative um, is meant to forestall. In other words, what are they? You mentioned marijuana, but what are some of the other policies that these lawmakers do not want citizens sort of putting initiatives uh, forward on? Well, I think minimum wage increases could be one where we have seen states like um, Arkansas, I believe, pass. And so that could be one area. Um, as well, um, the local control. Local control, yeah, which would allow cities to pass their own, um, uh, allow them to raise taxes to raise funds, for example, for transportation. Yeah see that big push from Boise on that. Yeah, I would say, I mean, marijuana and minimum wage are the two things that stick out to me, uh, just because, I mean, you'd have to think for us to pass this or the state legislature to get behind it, it would have to be something that they believe that the population would pass and that they would pass sometime soon. Um, and so marijuana and minimum wage seem like the only thing that on that list that would be on their radar. Yeah. Sorry, stoners. Bad news for you. I mean, we term limits, of course, has been an issue that's gone through this before. So there's also those things that legislators don't like. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on that and we'll report back to you when we learn more. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about free speech on campuses, which is back in the news this week. Stay tuned. Hi, my name is Ari. And you're listening to Radio Boise, KRBX, 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise, Community Radio for Boise and beyond. We're back on the Big Tent, uh, Radio Boise, KRBX, 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. And uh, now we're going to pick up on what seems to be a uh, hotly contested issue that keeps popping up in the news every couple of weeks. And I suppose it's been in the news in America since, you know, the 1770s. A little (laughs) thing called free speech. 
Yeah, so I was I was interested to see President Trump's a big fan of executive orders, as we know, um, sort of uh, since George W. Bush, I think increasingly presidents are using those as a way to to make policy. Uh, but this week he signed an executive order that required institu- uh, universities that receive federal funding to make sure that they are protecting free speech on campuses. Um, and this is interesting for a couple of reasons. One, because it's what I come to think of as sort of like nothing burger executive orders, which are sort of very just symbolic because most university campuses are already doing a lot to protect free speech. So even Berkeley, which is sort of like the bastion of liberalism in the United States, uh, spends thousands and thousands of dollars to ensure that speakers from across the spectrum, including the very far right, can come to their campus and give talks. Um, But I think it was yet another interesting shot across the bow in the culture wars, um, sort of sending a message about um, maybe uh, the role of conservative voices, space for conservative students on our college campuses today. Well, what I always find intriguing about the free speech debate, particularly around college campuses, is how often people misunderstand like misuse the term free speech or misunderstand what it is um and so you either get it one or two ways right it's people that think that they have this absolute right to free speech and they can say whatever they want and that is just fundamentally not true that any right you have stops when it runs up against other people's rights or the public interest and so that right to free speech we have 200 years of case law that says where it stops um the other th- uh, part of this is that people think it's only free speech if it, they agree with it so like, yeah, and so when most people say free speech they're like you have the right to say whatever you want as long as it's 100% something I agree with and if you say anything I don't then you are a terrible person and you should the government should stop you from speaking and that's really like where a lot of this comes around to right is is those type of either a misunderstanding or a misuse of this term I think the where where it gets more complicated for me is really around issues of race in particular and maybe maybe also gender but race comes to mind because I think increasingly on the far right, and again, not all conservatives, but some voices on the far right are becoming sort of more and more strident in their, um, in their critiques of people of color or of anti-racist discourse. And, and there is some sort of like violent rhetoric that is sneaking into some of that discourse. So I'm all for conservative activists putting on diapers and making fun of their liberal classmates. Like they should be able to protest that way if they want to protest that way. But I do think there are some forms of speech today uh, and maybe at both ends, far, far ends of the spectrum that are, are pretty problematic. And, and I think it's um, not so cut and dry for universities around which sorts of those voices they are obliged to showcase on their campuses. Well, I mean, I to the, the tune of tens of thousands of dollars in some cases right, for security. security and, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. But I mean, I think this is part of a, a larger trend um, where we stop respecting the other side, right? Um, and I think those problematic speeches are things that are happening are all coming from the fact that we stopped respecting other people's rights to disagree with us and that's really what college campuses are supposed to be a bastion of right is for us all just to throw out ideas um good bad whatever um 
and then healthily criticize those things in every kind of way. And then you walk around and go, well, maybe I was right. Maybe I was wrong. We've stopped respecting people's rights to do that. And so now it is, if you disagree with me, I hate you and you're a bad person. I mean, I totally agree. I agree with you. I would say like 98% of the way. But then if I, I do feel for a student, like let's say there's one student who says, you know what? You're Jewish. Jews have no place in America. And if there's another Jewish student listening to that, do they have an obligation to respect that point of view? That's where it gets complicated for me. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Now I tell you that uh, clearly there's emotion, there's individuality, there's some things caught up in this. Uh, as a strictly like academic right brain, what I would tell you is <laughs> that what we should do is go, now let's debate that idea. Let's uh, look at yeah. the pros and cons and, and basically break that idea. Now, in the moment when there's emotions flying and people are saying racist things, that's not realistic. Or, and synagogues are being sh- shot up, yeah. right? Like the lines between rhetoric and action right now feel so razor thin. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think the reason like things like that like anti-semitism and stuff like stand is because we don't criticize it we don't like have that healthy debate we just go oh no and then the conversation's over because we get upset that's a good point but if you just kind of have this like let me explain to you why i'm wrong and my 10 point powerpoint then maybe like that's a, a better way to approach it but it's not realistic when we have very emotional issues that we're talking about well and you're right they are often emotional issues and we've been talking about free speech in terms of allowing speakers to come on campus there's also been some of these issues have been around like anti-abortion demonstrators and the pictures and the graphics that they use and people's reactions to those pick the graphic nature of those and so how there's also been debates on where should they be allowed to demonstrate is often a big thing where people are allowed to share their voice on campus, what they're allowed to do, warnings about it. And so, yeah, it does get into very emotional elements. Yeah, I mean, that's such a good point, Jackie. And and again, Luke, I, I think you and I are much more on the same page than we are not. Um, but again, I'm thinking like in my interactions with individual students, we are having more and more students with mental health yep. needs who I think they're not, I don't like thinking of them as snowflakes. I like thinking of them as folks who are, having struggles at a particular point in their life at a greater rate than we've ever seen historically. And so is it my job to say to that student, you know what, I know it's going to be totally traumatic to you as a queer kid to go and hear this anti-queer message, but you have to do it because it'll expand your mind. Like, that's a really hard message for me to deliver right now. Yeah. And so, I mean, of course, that's always the challenge when it comes to policy, right, is the individual versus the collective. Um, And what like the argument I make makes sense at a collective level, but it does not. I mean, clearly there's some people that are going to get screwed in that in that situation um, that are not going to have their needs met. Um, but I mean, that's always the challenge here. And I, I think when it comes to our rights, um, we should probably always kind of yield to the individual. Uh, but I would just say that, you know, I always think of the academy as a place where you can say anything as long as you can justify it. Right. And if you can make the, the argument that it's right. Um, and I think we're losing some of that in part of the speech, free speech discourse, that we're losing some of that ability to have those real conversations. Yeah, it's a good it's a good it's a good point. I mean, I, to- I totally agree. I, w- I would love to see Charles Murray, who authored The Bell Curve, come and speak on campus, even though he was somebody who got attacked you know, at Middlebury because he has written uh, work that, that defends scientific racism. And I, I've, I've studied his work in depth. I find it really problematic. I would want to hear the ideas, and I would want there to be able to be a debate about that. And yet I also sympathize with arguments like, why are we even talking about scientific racism still, right? What, that there's a scientific basis for arguing that certain races are inferior, in other words. Um, aren't we past that? Haven't, hasn't it been disproven enough? Um, and so I, 
it's one of those issues that I go back and forth and um, I have a hard time sort of being very ideological about either side or put, you know, sticking my heat, putting my foot down in one camp or the other. Well, I'll just say as scientists, as academics, I think part of our job and part of our responsibility is to thoroughly question the things that we think we know about the world um, regularly um, and just like, oh, wait, the sky's blue, but let's prove it again just so we make sure that we've not made a mistake because um, we're talking about with the scientific research is the facts that we think we know about the world. And that's, I think those need to be questioned every day. Yeah. All right, on that note, we're going to go ahead and wrap things up. Uh, make sure that you're following us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter, but I'm not sure we've done a very good job of staying updated on Twitter. I, I because, need to do a better job. Yeah, Twitter's such a cesspool. It's hard for me to, to go on there, but we'll try. We'll try. If you're a Twitter, Twitter follower, we'll, uh, we'll make an effort to reappear there. Definitely follow us on Facebook at The Big Tent uh, here at, uh, at Big Tent Radio here at Radio Boise, and um, we'll talk to you next week.